Hey everyone, this is Flippin' Finance. I'm Sam Ismore and I'm joined by my co-host Fabian. Hello, hello. Today is October 16th, 2023. And today we're actually running through a special presentation. It is the building blocks of financial independence for young professionals. I'm actually giving a talk on this later this week. So this is a great dry run for me, but also we thought it'd be good to record and to be able to share. Uh, So with that, kick the disclosure music. As always, none of this is investment advice and does not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities, nor do any of my opinions reflect those of my employer, Filet Financial Advisors, or any of its affiliates. This is for educational purposes only. And things change, so we have no duty to go back and revise any of this information. With that out of the way, Fabian, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Um, about two weeks away from having a second baby come into my life. Goodness. So, as you can imagine, Things are moving very fast over here. Yeah, the stress levels are probably pretty low there, I'd imagine. I'm a pretty stress-free guy, man. Stress isn't high, but it's just like it feels like everything's moving really fast. Is that stress? Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know. <laughs> I feel like you're the one that doesn't have to go through a lot, so you're just kind of laid yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. That's accurate. That's accurate. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. We just uh busy with work and trying to get everything done. Today's actually the personal tax deadline. So I'm pretty sure I got everything done. If not, I'll get a phone call from someone here shortly. <laughs> but I think Aren't I'm good with all my clients and everything. Somebody called me at two o'clock in a little bit of a panic, but we're good. So, But that's like extension, right? Because isn't like April 15th or something like that tax day? Yeah, April 15th, great day. Might be my uh, fiance's birthday, which makes sense. She takes her pound of flesh just like the government. Love you. Um, (laughs) um, But generally, so when you're working with um, higher net worth people, they have, it's honestly easier to extend because you have K-1s, which are like private investment uh, tax documents that you need. They're generally not available by 415. So you end up extending and gives you more time to work on, on their return. And then, you know, occasionally CPAs don't like to work during the summer. So we end up frantically getting everything done in September and October. <laughs> I don't know why we do this, but it's it's what we do um, with it. So there's a couple last minute ones, but I think we're I think we're okay. So yeah, the more you know. Yeah, one day you'll be extending, Fabian. How but, do you know that I'm not already? Oh snap! Why, because I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Yeah, if you've got to ask, you're probably not. <laughs> yeah, you can't um, afford it. <laughs> so uh, on the on the pack for the podcast, people, I have a presentation to run through, um, but I don't think it'll be it'll impair your listening by not being able to see the presentation. But there is a beautiful slide here. This is the building blocks of financial independence for young professionals. So, being a young professional myself, I get asked by a lot of people, "What should I be doing? How, what's X Y Z?" So, um, I thought just a little presentation like this would. Um, be helpful. And also I'm giving a talk on it later this, this week. So, um, with that, we have a nice little disclosure page. Remember, you know, we're nice people and have cute families. Don't sue us. Um, but building on that Fabian, you love to hear your part too, but generally most of the people I meet with, even clients, you know, 99% of people are really kind of glowing, 
going up the Maslow's hierarchy of money uh, that I kind of make up. But near the top is just obtaining financial independence. I think everyone knows that they need to get to like a number to where the portfolio and your assets will help uh, support yourself. But I think you're just trying to get to the feeling of having enough. Um, and there's a, there was actually a great survey today um, I should throw in here. But like the difference between like feeling financially comfortable and wealthy are very different. But like in Denver, Colorado, a net worth of 700000 is what you would make people feel enough. Whereas wealthy is like 2.5. So everyone's number is a little bit different. But generally, most people like us are trying to figure out how you go from, in my case, you know, a negative net worth uh, roughly 10 years ago to like, I think everyone's trying to chase to be a millionaire or something like that. So how do I get from where I am today to where I want to be, where either wealthy or just feeling like I have enough? And for me, sitting down and creating a plan, because if you don't, <laughs> plans are useless, but by but planning itself is indispensable because things are going to change. You know, you have, we have no idea what geopolitical events are going to happen in the future. COVID, um, you know, crazy people being like the presidents, things like that. Um, things are going to change, but having a plan in place to allow you to um, duck, change, adapt, I think is uh, important. I don't know if that's kind of like your vibe for financial planning and independence, but love to hear your opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it, right? When it comes to financial independence, I think the majority, at least for for me, is making sure that I'm doing the right things, right? Yeah. Um, are you? Just in terms of where where are we putting money, making sure that the money that we are saving isn't just being wasted by sitting in our Chase account. Sure. Not that that's actually happening, happening, but just making sure that all the bucket, all the right buckets are full, and that we're not missing out on other opportunities. And again, just like feeling like we're doing the right things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's great too, and that that's why you work with an advisor to help you with that. Okay. But most people ask, like, what the heck is a financial plan? In my mind, it could be a lot of things. But I think there's four concrete areas where I help clients, but also I would tell anybody what a plan is. And the four areas are investments, estate planning, insurance, and then taxes and cash flow kind of go hand in hand. So whenever you're getting cash flow, taxes are accompanied with it, depending on the type of cash flow. So uh, investments are asset allocation. So that's your split between stocks and bonds. You can go way deeper into that, but this is just at a high level. Asset location. So that's what you're talking about, making sure things are being put in the right place. For example, like you don't want your Roth IRA sitting in just bonds. You want your Roth IRA growing. So you put it in stocks. And then having a plan for your investments as you get cash flow and other things like that. Estate planning. This is... Um, I'm. I, I work in this, so I, I see it a lot behind behind the scenes when people don't have estate planning, and it's just uh, it. We'll get into it later, but what an estate plan is is just like guardianship for your descendants, uh, powers of attorney, incapacitation documents that be medical directive and wills, and then there's taxes and cash flow, so basic tax planning. So you work with the CPA, Fabian. You guys through, go through proactive tax planning. That's uh, not everyone's doing that. And then there's insurance, so protecting independence, legacy goals, and just replacing uh, your human capital, which is kind of like how much you expect to make over the next 20 or 30 years. Um, so I mentioned earlier that we're in warp speed because baby number two is going to be here 
is this a good catalyst to re-engage my estate planning conversations? We've already had some estate planning, right? That felt like it was necessary when we had our first child. Now mm-hmm. that we've got the second one, probably a good idea to go back in and add him into the plan. Yeah. And also I would go back and double check with your your guardians, um, whoever that might be. Generally, it's like grandparents. But like, hey, we've got two now. Is two still good for guardians and things like that? Also insurance, go back and make sure you're properly covered on your insurance. Maybe you need more because you've got another child uh, there. So I don't think you need to overhaul an estate plan, but I think it makes sense to double check with who's named as guardian, who's named as in your documents that like they're aware that you know, the responsibilities have doubled, but also like, do you need more insurance? I don't know. Right. So, yeah. Probably. Life do. events are the always a great way to, yes. yeah, just make sure. Yeah. Um, but generally like financial plans start like when you get your first job, I don't know what yours was like, but you're sitting down generally you're with like other young people and it's, it's like, Oh, what did they teach us in school about like doing my benefits and like how much am I supposed to put in pre-tax versus post-tax in my 401k? What's the investments for that? What does all this mean? I have 15 minutes <laughs> to figure this, this out. This picture is hilarious because I've asked that question. Which is fine. Which is fine. Uh, I, I have a friend today. Uh, I'm not going to name them. But they asked me today, like, uh, they got a new job. And they're like, what investment do I pick? And, you know, luckily I'm a great friend. I'm like, pick that one. But this is generally where people's... Um, starting point for a financial plan is so i thought everyone as a young professional would would resonate that but my advice is you do what's called a savings cascade so i assume we're all working for solus corporations usually out of, out of the uh <laughs> our first gig i think you were i was uh as well for our first major one always take advantage of the company match uh, i'm assuming that you know we're working for, with a decent job that covers all our expenses so Step one, we should probably acknowledge that you know we're we're good in that area. But getting the company match is 100% return on your contribution. Uh, effectively, is how I look at it. Now, there's some vesting things in there too, so you don't always get it right away. So make sure you check on that. Vesting is just you might have to be with the company one, two, three years for that contribution to become yours. So keep that in mind. There's also health savings account. I think they're great to be putting a little bit of money into. Assuming you're in a high deductible health plan, most young people probably should be in a high deductible healthcare plan. Um, the second one, this is where the debate starts, is some people would say, max out your 401k first. I'm not really in that camp because I think you should have some after-tax money you know, to buy a car with, to buy a house, to pay off loans. It just gives you a little bit more, kind of t- start talking about the buckets that you were talking about, Fabian, which we'll touch on a little bit here. But Start building out a brokerage account, which is an after-tax investment account, kind of like a savings account that can uh, invest in, in different vehicles. Then once you kind of get to that number that you feel comfortable with, then I would go back to your 401k and start maxing out all the different other buckets you can do. So uh, qualified plan maxing out 401k. So in 2023, you can, uh, as a young professional, put 22500 into 401k. And then there's some other things you can do, like a backdoor Roth, which I can happy to explain if you have a question on that, Fabian. You know, do you know how those work? Um, yes, because we have them. But okay. I, if you were to quiz me and say, "Okay, explain how that works," I'm not your guy. 
Okay. Well, I'll explain real quick. So um, let's say you're making, I think it's $110,000 a year. You start getting phased out of being able to make Roth IRA contributions. And Roth IRA is great because it's going to grow tax-free. And when you take it out, it's tax-free. So as a financial advisor, you really like Roth IRAs, except at a certain point, you can't put money into them, but you can do a backdoor Roth IRA. So what you do is you make a non-deductible IRA contribution. So typically when you put money into an IRA, it becomes deductible against your income, but you're not going to do that. You're going to make a non-deductible contribution. You just can take cash, put it into your IRA, and then you're going to convert it to your Roth. There are limits on that. You can only do 6,500 per year, but by doing like the two-step Roth there, you get money into a Roth and then when you're 50, 60, you're going to have this large nest egg that you get to take out tax-free if you need it. So, Sounds yeah. like a good idea, which is probably why we did it. <laughs> yes, exactly. You have a good advisor. And the other part is just start investing in other areas, um, maybe into into real estate, rental home, other things like that. But make wine. sure you get... Huh? Wine. Wine, wine as well. Bourbon too. You can do bourbon, things like that. But make sure you're hitting these all kind of check marks before you go into um, other areas, in my in my humble opinion. Um, and the best way to do this, and this is what I do. I'm not, it sounds like you might be doing this too, Fabian, but I automate all my savings kind of cascading goals. So 401k, 401k contribution, automated. My HSA, automated to get me to the max, which I think is... Uh, 3375 for an individual. So like $100, uh, $50 a paycheck goes into that. And then I have a little bit of money goes into my savings account for that. And then whatever contribution I want to go to my brokerage account goes into that as well. So I kind of set it up that it just kind of flows um, from there. Um, and then I don't have to worry about it. So it's kind of taking a step back and thinking, what are all the buckets I want to hit? And then how do I set up my direct deposits? So it's just flowing and handling all that. So kind of set it up once. And I'm sure that's how you guys have set it up. Yeah. I mean, where you want to get to is where you're not thinking about the money being spent every month, right? Like you yes. initially, you eventually just forget that it's happening yes. um, because you've become numb to the fact that your money is just gone for now. <laughs> your money's gone. Yeah. yeah. I don't, for for now. Investing in yourself is just gone. <laughs> but it, I mean, the number doesn't show up when you log into the bank. It's gone. Yeah. It's already, it's already <laughs> where your goals are wanting to be. Exactly. Yes. So it's kind of like how much do I want to be hitting into these each different areas? Boom. I set it up that way. I'm not doing this because people are like, how much do I need to be looking at my finances? And I'm like, it's really not that much. You just need to be setting it up. So it's automatically happening. That's the work. That's what takes like a little bit of time. But like, I'm not looking at my finances on a monthly basis, you know? Just make sure my credit card bill is paid because everything else is kind of sitting out. So, and then we talked about those buckets earlier. So, you've got the three different buckets that I deal with. So, you got tax deferred. So, that is you're getting a deduction in today's tax, tax world. And when you pull that out, you're going to pay taxes on it. So the benefit of that is you're not paying taxes today. So you get to put more money into this bucket. It's going to grow tax-free. And then when you take it out, you pay taxes at whatever prevailing bracket you're in then. So that's a 401k, IRA, cash benefit plan, pension, things like that. So it's all pre-tax. And the way we try to do it is fill up each bucket in an appropriate amount. Then you got tax-free. So that's Roth IRA, Roth 401k, HSA. 
any money when you in those when you pull it out is going to be tax free. So what you do a little bit in retirement when you got your financial independence is you got your tax deferred, tax free, taxable bucket, and depending on your goals and your tax bracket, you can pull from different ones and control things a little bit better. And then taxable, that's when we pay taxes along the way. So that's your brokerage account. That's going to be like stocks, real estate. So that's going to be more capital gains intensive, which is a lower rate than income taxes. But you need to be cognizant that if you have like a $100,000 brokerage and you have $10,000 in capital gains and $5,000 of interest, that's going to be taxed at varying different rates. So keep that in mind. Any questions there, Fabian? No, no. Okay. The other big one is like, this is great. What do I actually invest in? And just remember, it's not a recommendation, but maybe a great idea to consider and do your own due diligence. But there's a really good strategy out there to start for table stakes in your portfolio. And this strategy beats 90% of, of active managers out there. It automatically rebalances. It's low cost. And they kind of make the decisions for you, Fabian, without looking at what the answer is. Did you know this beforehand? I did, yes. Okay. Because it's it's a recurring theme here on this show. Okay, well, what is it? Well, I'm I'm looking at it. Full disclosure, well, you... I'm looking at it. Yes. <laughs> Trying to give you a layup here. <laughs> the S and P five hundred. Yeah. So you can go and just invest in the 500 biggest companies in the US. It's called the S&P 500 index. There's a lot of different ETFs out there and it gives you broad diversification and generally does pretty well. It can do pretty bad. Um, you know, COVID year, it was down 25, 30% very rapidly, but generally stocks are going to do well over the long run. S&P 500 is a great way to just get an introductory allocation to investments uh, going. So I usually tell people to just start there. And then once you're, you think your portfolio has gotten too big and you need a little more diversification, then we can help out then. But generally, that's not until like you have six figure numbers and just in investable assets before you should even think about maybe making a change from that. Even then, even then, like some of my clients have very large allocations just the S&P 500. So, so. Uh, for somebody starting out, right, where we're kind of putting in ourselves in the position of someone who just got their first job looking to start sure. investing, uh, in this scenario, if someone is investing with, like, say, Robinhood, right, they, they would be investing their money to the S&P 500. They could be investing their money in that way, right? Yeah, you can. Like through yeah, one of those so like, apps? Yeah, so Robinhood, yeah, so like ETFs, there's a bunch of S&P 500 ETFs that you could buy through almost any brokerage. Like I know Robinhood does. Any other major brokerage will have like their version of the S&P 500 index ETF or fund in there. Just look for something low cost. Um, my big thing is to just, and we'll touch on it here uh, in a little bit. I think it's the next couple of slides, but it's just, I don't think your time is really worth trying to pick stocks and become a millionaire when you're just mm -hmm. starting out, it's like, let's get some basic exposure to things. Cause I'll show you the math on it here in a little bit. Yeah. Let's just get some basic exposure. But my, my question is if they've started off doing that way, could they transfer, let's say they were working with you, would they be able to somehow transfer that so that you're the one that's managing it? Is that like yeah. a, a weird mm -hmm. question? No. Yeah. So like, that's a great example. So that happens all the time. So like Schwab and, and other custodians, wherever your, your brokerage account may be, 
you can almost always transfer like a, a normal ETF to, to an advisor who can help assisting with you once things become a little more complex. Yeah. Almost always. Yeah. So good question. Um, this one I like to dedicate to my mom cause she's always saying, well, stocks are gambling, uh, on this. She's like talking about the meme stocks and, and things like that on an individual basis. I would not say like if you're doing like aggressive stock behavior, yes, it can be gambling. But if you're investing just in the S&P 500, it's 500 stocks in it. It's well diversified. It's not really gambling. The gambling though comes from the, what my mom is talking about the gambling. It just comes from the feeling of the gyration of stocks. So you can see it on here in the presentation and for the podcast viewer. So the stocks variance. So the difference between a year to year in stocks can be as high as 47% and as low as 39%. So the stocks have a wide gyration in the short term. And then as you kind of start using bonds, which are safer assets, and then combining them together, you get more compact um, determinate outcomes. So as you combine stocks with cash, bonds, other things, your outcome becomes more determinate. So if you have a 50-50 portfolio of stocks, bonds, your range of outcomes is tighter. So instead of going from 47% all the way down to minus 40%, you have a tighter range in the one year of having a 33% increase versus a 15% decrease. So you, am I explaining that well enough, Fabian? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in the short term, stocks, yes, are risky. I wouldn't consider them gambling just high range of outcomes. But as you move forward to the 10-year and the 20-year, which we're investing for the long term, I know it's boring, um, but you're you're better off in stocks than you are in cash and other vehicles. So you can see this on the 20-year, the stock return is roughly 17 to 6% returns, whereas bonds are 12 to 1%. Uh, on their range of outcomes. So the range of outcomes for stocks is actually higher in the long run than it is for other uh, investment vehicles. And that's why you're investing in stocks rather than cash, bonds, and other things that are out there. Did I explain that okay? Yeah. The visual, I mean, obviously helps helps a ton because you can see exactly... Well, you can see it right there. It's better than your terrible explanation. (laughs) No, but... (laughs) It makes sense. Yes. Okay. Take All away right. in it for the long haul. Yes. So we're kind of building on, you know, starting with S and P 500 and the, the, the larger kind of outcomes. And then some people just get, I guess, antsy or they want more. Um, there's other things out there. You can definitely start doing trading and options and things like that. I don't really advocate for that as I'll show in the math here, but you can start doing private real estate, like rental projects. You can start getting into, to other different strategies. Um, the one thing I just want people to consider is if you're seeing cool things out on the social medias, I just keep in mind that a lot of these people are taking, you're seeing the winners of people taking inordinate risk. Generally people don't go in there and talk about how much they just lost on investing. So you're just seeing the winners who worked out, who, might've done something imprudent and it worked out, but also like if someone's coming to you with this great investment strategy, I'm always just very skeptical and just ask like, why are they sharing this with me? You know, like you got this great <laughs> investment strategy. Don't you have a private Island? Like, why are you, why are you coming to me with this? And, uh, 
generally there's some laughs and then I'm like, no, seriously, like if it's working so well, why do you, why do you want to sell it to me? So, um, I think that's a great question to ask. Oh yeah. 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 I always just ask like, why is this opportunity being presented to me? What is this other person's incentive? Mm-hmm. And how does this go together? Which we'll get into a little bit with uh, questions. Ask your advisor uh, here in a little bit. Just be able to ask that awkward question of like, you know, I'm just like normal Sam and normal Fabian. Like, why are you reaching out to me? Um, but I like to keep it in perspective. We talked about earlier with the trading and the options and things like that. Let's say you have a hundred thousand dollars in investable net worth. Your your account is, is worth that much, and you spend ten hours a week investing in stocks. So that's like two hours a day. That would be the bare minimum on being like a prudent investor um, just to get 10% better returns. So 10% better returns on $100,000 portfolio, that's $10,000 an hour. And if you're spending 10 hours a week on that, that's 520 hours, that's $19 an hour. I would argue that is not the best use of your time as a, as a young professional I think you should be taking that time and putting it into your career, networking, whatever, because the leverage there is going to be way better. Now, once the numbers get bigger, yeah, sure, spend more time on your brokerage account, but keep in mind how much time you're spending to get what return and like what return of that is on your money. Now, like if you're like Fabian and your portfolio is 5 million, it's very different, very different time. You know, this (laughs) reminds me of like, I'm going to take a weird turn here, but this reminds me of like pizza, right? Like I'm sure I could make a pretty good pizza at home, but I'm going to let somebody else whose job it is to make a good pizza, make my pizza for me. Right. Does that every analogy time, make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. Cause every time I go to make pizza, I'm like, this is going to be great. And by the end of it, I'm cleaning up and I was like, that was stupid. I should have just gotten King dough. For it, like and it, a it was probably more. cheaper. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's how I feel about stock trading. Um, moving off, uh, investing. The next thing is estate planning and something we will all have to encounter, uh, in our life, which is death and taxes. And if you can't see it on here, I've got the bar. Have you, you haven't seen Barbie yet? Oh, and well, okay. Well, in the maternity leave, we will be watching it on maternity leave. All right. Well, for those who haven't seen it yet, there's like the hilarious scene in the beginning where all the Barbies are dancing and then the main Barbie, Margot Robbie, just start, stops dancing and goes, do you guys ever think about dying? And they're all just like, what? You know, um, but there's also Ben Franklin in here. So, uh, you know, there's nothing in the world said to be certain except death and taxes. So this is going into the estate planning. Most people are like, what the hell is estate planning? It's pretty simple. The big thing is, and I'm, I'm going through this right now um, with one of my client's parents. They don't have an estate plan. They don't have incapacitation documents, so they can't, his his kids cannot make decisions for him. They are currently in a coma. Not good. Yeah. So like I've seen firsthand like what, why it's important to have uh, these in place. And the big ones for me are just incapacitation documents, which is healthcare power of attorney, financial power of attorney, and advanced medical directive. Um, so healthcare power of attorney is just, um, I'm a vegetable. I need someone to make decisions on behalf of my healthcare. Financial power attorney, also known as a durable power attorney, means someone can step into my shoes and make decisions on behalf, uh, like make sure my rent gets paid, make sure my utilities are paid, make sure my car doesn't get repossessed or something like that. Just allows the person to act on your behalf. 
And then the, the last one is your advanced medical directive. So like for me, um, you know, I'm a fighter, you know, maybe I can come out of the coma, but if it's clear I'm in a coma for like a while, just like cut me off. I don't want to be a vegetable, but maybe I could fight for a little bit. That's what my advanced medical directive is. So, um, my fiance who's loving, I'm sure I'm worth more dead than alive. So I'm sure she would pull that pretty quickly, but we'll hopefully never have to find out uh, on that. I'm not sure what yours is. Are you, are you uh, like a fighter in your advanced medical directive? Uh, I, I honestly, I don't remember. It was the, honestly, that was have the weirdest. Yes. But that was just like weird. the part where I'm like, what we were asked that, what, what do most people do? Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like back to that slide where it's like, Hey, which one did you pick? You know, same. Yeah. Thing. I picked the target date fund on that. Uh, anyways, uh, the other one is guardian for your kids. I meet a lot of, a lot of people who have not done guardianship for their kids. I think that's really important um, for that. Uh, that. That can be part of your your will. You probably don't need a trust um, generally when you're first starting out. Um, and then we did a whole episode, me and you and one of our fellow advisors on why you should take care of your estate plan because that was uh, two married individuals. Unfortunately, one of them passed away and it was a whole mess because they had not taken care of their estate planning yet. Yet, and then on top of that, you're going through the grieving process, and it's just horrible to deal with that stuff. So, um, estate planning can be really simple. You just need like some core documents. Have that awkward conversation of which one do people pick the most. Just have something down. It's better than nothing. Yeah. The other part is insurance. Um, most everyone I meet, being a young professional, and if they have kids, is generally underinsured. Like I'm probably slightly undersured myself right now, but I'm okay with that. But the big thing is if you have dependents, you really want to be making, so kids, you know, maybe pets, my pets are definitely, uh, ex, you know, bougie, expensive models. Um, they, they live a bougie life. They have to keep, keep it up. If I'm not around, you want to be able to cover, you know, at least 20 years of income or expenses, mortgages, college, whatever for that. And the basic way to, to run that is let's say, I have a $100,000 salary, multiply that by 20. Let's say my mortgage is 500,000. Bam, $2.5 million term life policy right there just on the back of the envelope math. Um, I don't sell insurance. So like I'm not incentivized to push people to do that. But that's just an easy, almost everyone I meet right there who has kids and is doing moderately well, almost none of them have like a $2.5 million term life policy. I don't know what yours are. Are you you're like 10 million, Fabian? 100, you know? No. Million? Uh, honestly, I, I don't know. It's it's less I'm sorry than to put it you on should the spot be. like this. No, it's okay. No, but that is true. It's less than it should be. And we, I just, I have to, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm not dealing with this right now. Uh, but yeah. like exhibit A, like you're, most people are just probably undersured. They probably have like a million or something like that and they have something to work. But as soon as you have a dependent, um, generally, if you just do the back level of math right there, you're kind of like, I need a little bit more than what I have. And it's generally not that expensive. Most people think uh, insurance, they see there's another cost. Um, but for every like a million dollars of, of term life policy, assuming you're in good health, is about $500 a year. It's pretty cheap insurance. Um, that generally goes into like whole life policy, being in your own bank, whatever you want to call it. Um, you don't really need that. The only people who need 
term life or excuse me, whole life policies are uh, actually really rich people for estate planning. So um, if you have issues with exemptions and estate tax problems, call me, obviously. I can help you with that. But if you don't, you don't need whole life policy. <laughs> so um, the other part is taxes. So this is something you probably can opine on pretty well here. Um, for one, tax complexity is not going away. It's only increasing. Um, and at the same time, it's just great to have a proactive plan around taxes. Now, I know you work with a good CPA who does proactive advice. So maybe you want to kind of talk about a little bit of what you do, because I believe you have an S-Corp set up. Yep. Yep. I started off, uh, had an LLC and then switched to, to being an S corp to take advantage of, of some things. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of different strategies, but it would help that you had a professional CPA to walk you through the pros and cons of doing that. Right. Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would be lost without her. Yeah. Yeah. And me emotionally. Uh, anyways, but it's good to have a, a plan around that, especially for a small business owner, uh, there are some easy, low-hanging fruit is 529 contributions. So for crew, yeah, be putting that in there. I put um, my fiance is still in school, so I put money into the 529 plan. We talked about maxing out the 401ks earlier. And then if you are starting a business, there are um, at least some perks around the ability of what you can do there. So what Fabian is describing with an S-Corp, their big strategy with that is you pay yourself annual salary, whatever a reasonable salary is. And then any profits above your reasonable salary is distributed out, but you don't pay payroll tax on that. So it's roughly 3%. So um, a great example is you have a business owner, you pay themselves $100,000, but they make two hundred fifty. dollars That one hundred fifty dollars um, kind of gets around the Medicare payroll tax of 2.9%. So you save roughly $5,000 in taxes back of the envelope math. So that's, yeah, which is, th- that's uh, the benefit of having a good proactive CPA like Fabian works with. Um, question on the 529 um, here in Indiana, you've got the little caveat there, 20% back in state credit. Is that per child? So if I've got two separate no. 529s. No, that's just the max. So yeah. So like for every state's different. So Indiana is just 20% back in state credit up to 7,500. Um, whereas like Virginia does it by beneficiary, Denver does it, um, just by a credit up to a certain AGI amount. So every state's different. Like North Carolina doesn't even have a, a, a state income deduction for 529. So really state mm. dependent. Okay. Yeah. And that, that, Increase to seventy five hundred. It used to be five, right? Yeah, seventy five hundred now. Yeah, I'll send you my That's bill. Nice. <laughs> uh, routine optimizations I see in people's plans. So a big thing is just having high, uh, too high of cash levels. Some people just, you know, they need like three years worth of of money um, sitting in a bank account for their expenses. That's probably too much uh, for that. And then on top of that, making sure that that cash can get uh, a yield on it. So interest rates are no longer 0%. So that's a big thing there. Very easy to optimize, find a money market there. Um, Using high cost investment vehicles, we talked about S&P 500. The IVV, which is the iShares S&P 500, has an expense ratio of 0.03%. So you're looking for something like that. Really incredibly low. Whenever you look at studies of of managers and things like that, expenses are the biggest driver of returns. Um, no estate plan, got to have that. Generally underinsured, and then 
the last two are retirement plans generally should be in long-term assets, you know, stocks or long-term assets. And then I think Dave Ram, I wrote a critical article a couple weeks ago just on like what Dave Ramsey gets, gets wrong. I do think he gets a lot right if you are in some bad debt. So bad debt would be like credit card debt and other things. Good debt, I would consider a mortgage. It's not, that's not a bad debt, especially if you have a rate that's like 2.5% back in the heyday. But if you have a positive net worth, I would say you've graduated from Ramsey um, and being able to grow your net worth instead of digging yourself out of a hole. I'm debt free. Yeah. Are you? No, that's oh. if you've ever listened to his show, he's got those people, whatever they call it. Oh, I can't. And they've can't actually finished paying off all their debt. He has them yell, I'm debt free. I can't do that. No. Uh, putting it all together uh, without a plan, planning to fail. Uh, classic quote there. I would just sit down 30 minutes uh, a month. That's all you really should be doing for your finances. And then it kind of sucks, but like compounding. When, when you're young, you have the, the ability for time and compounding. So like the earlier you can start, the better off you are. I know it's such a overused phrase, but it, it's what we have in our advantage is starting young. Um, there's a lot of different models for advisors out there. So just want to be cognizant. Like if you want to do all that yourself, yourself, but eventually you're graduate to a point, uh, like Fabian and other people where you need a, a great advisor along with you. So for financial advisors, there's what you call assets under management. That means I'm trying to get, uh, uh, your money into a pot where I'm going to charge, call it 1% on that pot. So any asset under my management, AUM. I'm going to charge a fee on. There's nothing wrong with that. It's totally good. There's also a transition, uh, transactional um, advisors. So that's going to be like a broker. They charge you a fee to, to take care of certain things. A big one is life insurance. So if I sell you life insurance, I make money. If I don't sell you life insurance, I don't make money. Um, I don't love that one because just the incentives. Like I have to get you to buy something uh, on that. Now, like I help people get insurance all the time, but they need it. So it's just a little bit different. There's also a flat fee planning model. You can go find a financial advisor. Maybe they'll charge like five grand to kind of set all this up for you and run everything through it. And then it's kind of on you to, to do all that. Um, and there's also a planning engagement. Maybe if like a very specific thing going on in your family, you can find an advisor who will just charge just for this set amount of time. And then there's net worth, which is what I do. So advising people on their net worth. Uh, I'm doing it for a reason. I think it's best. Obviously, I'm biased because uh, none of these are a perfect fit for everybody. So it kind of depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for just a, a one-time tamper and scamper situation, maybe like a, a planning engagement um, would be just guess best for you. Um, if you want ongoing advice, I would recommend you know assets under management or a net worth model, someone who's going to be there with you over time. So kind of uh, all these models have pros and cons. It's just a matter of what do you want out of that professional. And how do you figure that out? Um, oh, well, I was going to go into my questions, but I'm jumping ahead. Uh, red flags for those advisors to look out for. So it's something called uh, the agency problem. So like a realtor, their their job is really to like get you to buy the house. Um, you have to think of like what somebody's incentive is. This is an agency problem. is inherent in any professional uh, relationship. Uh, a big one though, red flag for me is just products. If someone's selling a product or if they're talking about how much of a big producer they are talking about sales, that's 
generally, do you want to work with that or do you want someone to, who works with and gives really great advice? That's kind of up to you. I don't know. I'm always shocked at how people pick like the big producer. He's so successful. If someone and ever they, said to me, I'm a big producer, I'd laugh and like walk away. Uh, there, uh, there's, a, there's a company that has a bull uh, for its logo and they talk about like that would be like their active sales pitch. It's like I'm a big time person. I work with so many families and I make a million big, dollars. Big time. Yeah, no, it's it's weird. Yeah. People are like, oh, I love this. And I'm like, that person's going to be bad advice, but what do I know? Um, yeah. There's also fiduciary. So like a doctor should be your fiduciary, but you know they're not perfect. Um, a bank uh, should be your fiduciary, but like, is a bank always going to do what's in your best interest? If you read my articles, probably not. Um, and my favorite test is generally, do you like this person? Um, you should be working with this person. It should be a partnership. If you hate them, uh, probably not a good <laughs> experience for you. Um, maybe you like this one on here for the people on the podcast that can't see the, the images, but uh, questions you should ask your advisor. And I, I talked about earlier, like you, you make it uh, uh, not awkward, but ask the hard question of like, why are you bringing me this investment strategy? Make sure you're asking these hard questions of people you're interviewing as well. So it's just, how are you being compensated? If they cannot articulate in a direct, clear way how they're being compensated, red flag. You know, just that's that seems odd to me. It should be very straightforward. Are you fiduciary? Um, is this person going to be acting in your best interest? That's that's important to me. Maybe it's not important to other people. Um, are you a generalist or a specialist? Um, once again, that kind of goes into your situation. You want to be looking for someone that fits it. If you're a generalist and you just have some simple things going on, great. If you have like a really complex... Uh, special needs family case, I would look for a special needs certified advisor. Great example there. Um, don't be taking like a complex thing to a generalist. It just it generally won't work out. Um, are your interests aligned? You know, um, like is this person's incentive to help save and sell you whole life insurance? Um, yeah. And then another one, I get this one a lot, is just to ask to talk to a client or two of theirs. Um, it's a little awkward or whatever, but, you know, generally I have some pretty good clients who would be happy to um, talk to any prospective people as as well. So don't be afraid to ask. There's generally no bad questions unless you're my mother. Hmm. Yeah. Anything there? Anything you'd add? No, I, I can just see that being awkward if you're like, yeah, man, I'm going to need like two to three names of people that you work with. It happens all the time, dude. Really? I, I, I just feel like that would be that would be that would put some people off and then be like, you know what? Maybe we should make it work out together. But <laughs> well, no, it's just the there's some people who are just they want to like they want to test drive. They're like, Can I talk to a client? Like, what's the experience like? Yeah. I'm like, Yeah, sure. Here's Billy Bob. Billy Bob. Okay. Let me send you mm-hmm. my disgruntled client. I'll just do that. Here's my angriest client. They would love to talk to you. Um, so like kind of wrapping up what you're looking for in an advisor. Um, credentials, they're certified financial planner, CFP. That's a really big one. Um, it's not that hard for an advisor to get that. So like if they don't have it, I would kind of wonder why they don't. There's a CFA, chartered financial analyst. That's really heavy in investments not necessarily needed for general investment advice. And then I talked about earlier specialists. So like certified divorce financial advisor, there's a certified, uh, 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 oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it. 
there's one for special needs trust. I forget what it is, but there, there's one for that. So there's a lot of different certifications you can you can find. Um, find a model that fits your need. And then um, I tend to get, enjoy working with uh, younger, hungry professionals because they actually answer emails and calls. Um, but that's just me. So, yeah. What questions do you have, Fabian? My my one question always comes back, and I know your answer to this, but it's it, it always comes back to just paying off the house. What's your rate again? It's going to feel so good. 2.75. So I I always come back to that one because real estate, and I get this one all the time from our clients too. um, Real estate is one of the unique asset classes that allows you to leverage itself. Um, So like a safe leverage amount. So I just think that like, can you earn more than 2.5% investing in other areas other than putting that money into paying off a 2.5% mortgage. That's yeah. The I think we could. Yeah. Well, there you go. But like, would it feel great? Yeah. But it will also like the trade off to me is you could have like a larger brokerage account. You could be putting more money into a tax deferred, uh, solo 401k. You could be doing all these other things first before doing that. Hmm. Yeah. That's what I think about it. Okay. I'm okay. just man. This is a great presentation, Sam. Stop it. It was. Stop it was good. It. Yeah. What are your biggest takeaways? That Hazel's the cutest right here? <laughs> no, it's um, it's that you should 100% just ha- have a plan, right? And it's yeah. not as difficult as, as it seems, right? It's what, what did you say? Maybe 30 minutes a month and a couple conversations just to get the yeah. ball rolling. And then, you know, if you and set up everything fine. ahead of time, then, yeah, it's... And then you go and refine it from there. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, you can uh, rate rate us on uh, Apple, Spotify. We're on there. Reach out with your questions. Um, we do tend to answer them. Um, uh, maybe we should do more shout outs with who's actually uh, asking them. But uh, I think the next one might have to be, uh, Joe keeps asking me how you buy, uh, you know, Joe Kaufman keeps asking me how mm-hmm. you buy a U.S. Treasury. So you might have to Ooh. do that. Okay. I would also like to know that. Okay, great. That'll be our next episode. So, with that, bye. Bye.